Justin Kaepernick's actually for different levels, aren't they? Isn't that the blessing of the body of Christ coming together and ministering to one another and seeing the very best things that God has for us take place? I hope we're all very, very humbled and yet rejoicing in Christ's presence. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning as we gather in your name, we ask that you would glorify Jesus Christ. Let it all be about Him. Lord, that you would humble us. For in your humbling every day, our pride rises up and rises up and rises up. And does us no good. We pray that you would draw us unto yourself in faith and obedience. the ministerial word of the Spirit and the Word. According to the 1860 United States Census, the population of this nation at that time was 29 million. Seems pretty small, doesn't it? From April 12, 1861 to May 13, 1865, roughly 623,000 soldiers, north and south combined, died in that great civil war. 623,000 is the lowball estimate, though the one that is most often quoted. More than half of those died from disease. Not how we usually think about war, is it? And yet that 623,000 is more than every other U.S. war combined up through the Vietnam War. In the 1860s, that number was more than 2% of the U.S. population. Some of you were probably working that out in your mind as, as a child. Right? Better than one in every 50 people Nearly every extended family lost someone. And if you included the folks who show up here on a, on a good Sunday, what is that, maybe three or four, on average, would have been lost. Imagine how we'd respond. It'd be a lot of grief, wouldn't it? The war ended in 1865, but the grieving continued. On May 5th, 1865, 66, there arose from all that sorrow a new tradition in Waterloo, New York, and most authorities give Waterloo the credit, although that's questionable. A tradition in which on that day they would place flowers on the graves of those who died in the war. A year later, General John A. Logan, president of the Grand Army of the Republic, declared that May 30th would be a day, quote, to decorate with flowers the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion, unquote. 
quite appropriately, it was called Decoration Day. How many of you, in the course of your lifetime, recall having at one point called this holiday Decoration Day? Yeah, we just identified ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's no wonder that the Civil War gave rise to a day of this sort. By the third year of the war, so many Union soldiers had died that the military cemeteries in Washington and Alexandria were filled. Secretary of War Stanton commanded Quartermaster Meigs to attain another seminary. And without hesitation, he chose Robert E. Lee's plantation, Arlington. Meigs was bitter toward the South because of the war, and especially toward the South's leaders. And so he wanted to make sure Lee could never live on his plantation again. Tomorrow's most solemn ceremony will be the placing of the wreath at the tomb of the unknown in Arlington. After World War I, the observance of Decoration Day was changed. It was broadened. Since then, it's been set aside for the honoring of all who have died from American wars and the remembrance of all deceased relatives and friends, whether military or civilian. In 1971, the day was changed once again to the last Monday in May. Tomorrow, some of you may visit a cemetery to honor your loved ones. I won't ask who or how many. But I would suggest to you that in the past, a much higher percentage of us did that than do so today. Our society doesn't place as much priority on honoring the dead as it once did. But that's only partly true. I work as a chaplain for a hospice company. Many of you already knew that. Working for a hospice company is a little bit like working for the CIA. Nobody understands what you do. There are so many misconceptions about hospice. But it's also like being that last guy in the circus parade who carries the bucket and shovel behind the elephant, you know? Nobody wants a job because you're dealing with death every day. Out of my office, and we're just one office and there's multiple offices from my company, and there's many companies who are hospice companies. But uh, my office in East Lansing, which I work out of, we have typically a census of hospice patients between 250 and 260. I serve just a fraction of that number. Every day, I get an email telling who amongst those 250 to 260 have died. Some of my patients are on there at least every Thursday. Now, we, we can't be there 24-7 for every one of our patients. It's impossible. But we try to be there. We make it a huge priority to be there when they die. And we're there about 80% of the time. 
And when we are, our nurses and aides following the death, following the expression of grief of the family, they will wash the body, fix the hair, make sure that the deceased is nicely dressed. And the families are always very grateful for that. Thankful we've honored the bodies of their loved ones. And that ought not to seem strange to us, and it probably doesn't, does it? But it especially ought not to seem strange to us who are believers. Because the biblical pattern is to honor the dead, isn't it? From one end of Scripture to the other. In the last verses of the book of Genesis, we're told that Joseph was 110 years old when he died. But he was living in Egypt, outside the land of promise. And so we read in Genesis 50, 25, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. He made them swear that when God brought them back to the land of promise, that they would take his bones with them. And they did. Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on oath and he had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Of course, once you get to the promised land, you've got to do something with the bones, right? You can't just carry them around forever. Joshua 24, 32, and Joseph's bones, which Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Amor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. They honored Joseph's body, though he had been dead for hundreds of years. King Saul fought the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, and he died that day. He was killed. The Philistines found his body the next day, cut off his head, and put his body on display as a war trophy. The men of Jabesh Gilead were outraged by this. First Chronicles 10, 12, all the valiant men went and took the bodies of Saul and his son and brought them to Jabesh. Then they buried their bones under the great tree in Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. But even that, wasn't good enough for David. Second Samuel 21, 12-14, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish, at Zila and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. Now, folks, we could list a number of other examples of how dead bodies were honored and all the examples would come from Scripture and the most prominent of them being the honoring of our Lord's body after it was taken down from the cross. There's quite a description of that in the Gospels, isn't there? You see, the Bible sets for us a pattern of honoring the dead. I think we ought to learn from that. We ought to honor the dead. But why? 
person's no longer there, right? And as the deceased, as a believer, we know from John 14 that someday there will be reunion with them in heaven. So why honor what is often thought of as an empty shell in the ground, right? That person is gone. They're not in the grave. Why honor the dead? First of all, because of the resurrection of the dead. This body is not disposable, is it? It's not a throwaway container. It's not something you use for one lifetime and then you replace it. Uh Uh-uh. Man is not a ghost in a machine. And we ought never to think of ourselves that way. This body, actually, is forever. You know, you read carefully through Scripture, you find that soul, spirit, heart are never called immortal in the Bible. Not one. Now, we know from the overall teaching of Scripture and other things that are said that the inner man is going to either live forever or die forever. But the inner man is never called immortal. Called the body is. Isn't that, isn't that surprising? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to, uh, 52 to 53, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. I want you to notice a couple things from those verses. First of all, the context, the subject, is resurrection. Resurrection of the body. Verse 52 says, the dead will be raised. What's dead is the body. That's what's going to be raised. Secondly, it says, that which is going to be resurrected is right now perishable. What's perishable is the body we have right now. We're very aware of how perishable it is, aren't we? But it is this body also that will be raised, resurrected, and when it is, it'll be different. And so Paul calls the resurrected body, which is this body, changed. He calls it imperishable and immortal. And we read about that change a little earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Oh, let me tell you, folks. If you haven't started experiencing through through the passing of years the weakness of the body, it's coming. All right? It's coming. The indignities, the, the weariness, Thank you. 
sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The change of this body to a resurrection body is something like the change of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Once the metaphor, metaphor oh, fourth grade word. Once the metamorphosis has taken place, that little creature has become something completely different, and yet it's still the same creature in the same body, just radically changed, right? The same is true of our resurrection body. It is this body that is raised. Make no mistake about that. Never be confused about that. Don't edge. Don't compromise on that. It is this body that is raised. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. Reincarnation is contrary to the Scriptures. Reincarnation is the belief that when the body dies, the soul or spirit of the person is transferred into another body so that the same soul lives on in another life as another person in another body. That is not what the Bible means by resurrection. Not even close. A resurrection is the restoration of the same body to life, not the migration of the soul to another body. Now, I know there are difficulties with the notion of resurrection, aren't there? The old conundrum that is, is, is often raised is that of uh, a man, we'll call him John. John died, he was buried generations ago under an apple tree. Buried rough in a simple wooden coffin. Years later, as developments came through the area, the apple tree was taken down and they, they had to dig up all those who were buried there. They dug up John and found that the roots of the apple tree had dug, had had grown right through the coffin supplanting the body. The corpse had been absorbed through the roots up into the tree. Now that apple tree had been popular and many people had eaten the apples, giving rise to the question, of course, you know where I'm going, right? Okay, we'll leave it there. So, how's this guy supposed to be resurrected, right? Or what about those who died at sea? Or what about those who were cremated? Fifty years ago, 4% of the U.S. population was cremated after death. Um, today, it's at least 50%. Mostly for financial reasons. That's a lot of ashes for God to be keeping track of, right? That's the way we think about it. How can those bodies possibly be resurrected? Now, I believe there are good answers to those questions, and I'd be happy to talk with you about them at another time. But ultimately, I don't have to know how God will resurrect bodies any more than I need to know how God parted the Red Sea or resurrected Lazarus or fed the 5,000 or created the universe. By the way, how did God create the universe? God spoke it into existence, right? 
by the bare word he spoke, he brought it all into existence. Can you imagine the kind of speech that is able to accomplish whatever it says? This would be a far different world if I had that kind of power if you did. Every pastor wishes he had that kind of power. Every parent, can you imagine? Say something and it is so. Win your win. Right? Do your homework. Be careful. Make me cry. understand how God will resurrect created, cremated bodies. Doesn't disturb me in the least. There's a whole lot I don't understand. But I know my God is able. And if he can create this universe by fiat, then he can resurrect a body that's been cremated. So no matter how you die, and no matter how your body is disposed of at death, God will resurrect the body. And the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that fact. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hand. Reach your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Now I want you to, to take note that the scars were still visible on the resurrected body of our Lord. It wasn't a replacement body. It was the same body resurrected. Now once again, now, there are so many questions and issues that are raised with the idea of resurrection. Does that mean that in our resurrected body, all scars will remain? If, if, if you've been horribly disfigured, if you've suffered terrible burns, if you've suffered amputations, does that mean that those scars will remain forever? Well, in my never-so-humble opinion, I would say, no, it does not. I believe that Jesus resurrected Redemptive scars are unique. And if heaven is all that it is described to be and the experience of eternity is all that we read about throughout the scriptures, then I can't believe that disfiguring scars are going to remain. But the truth to be derived from John chapter 20 is that the resurrection body is the same body. Resurrection is a restoration to life a return to life of the body, and Jesus' scars keep that. And that makes this body important. 
Now, I'm not telling you anything you aren't already convinced of because you take good care of that body. But you, you look before you cross the street. You get sick, you do something about it, right? But there's more to it than that. Perhaps we can best understand it if we were to imagine that this body wasn't going to be resurrected. If this was all that there was ever going to be for this body. If instead God just created a new body for us, in that case, I think we'd be a lot less careful with what we did with this body. And in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul builds on that concept. 1 Corinthians 6.18, we read, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. That's not easily understood. I recognize that. But I would suggest to you at least this from it. In the resurrection, if God just created a new body for us, we could respond to that verse in 1 Corinthians 16 and say, well, so what, Paul? So what, you know, that, that I'm sinning against this body because I'm going to get a new one, a different one in the future. What does it matter? I don't need to worry about it. But that's not the case. For believers, the same body will be changed from mortal to immortal. And therefore, this body will be an eternal reminder. And I don't know how much significance that will have in heaven, but I don't want to have any significance at all. I don't don't want to be reminded by my body of sin. I've got to tell you, folks, the older I get, the more the more I struggle with regret. What do you deal with regret? I can't believe I'm the only one. In an instant, I can be filled by just a, a quick reflection on a past memory filled with shame, guilt, regret. And I have to work very hard to apply Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold, but the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I definitely don't want to be doing things with this body that create shameful memories that will last for who knows how long. So now let's transfer these concepts to the matter of how we treat the bodies of those who have died. We are responsible for their corpses. They have left them in our care. And someday they will return and those bodies will stand up and live again if they are believers If a friend left you in charge of his house while he went away for a year, you'd want him to find it at his return in just the same condition as when he left, right? You'd be very careful with it. You'd protect it, make sure that nobody vandalized it, set up those timers on the light so that nobody thought it was empty, take care of the lawn, make sure the windows were shut when it rained. Shouldn't our attitude toward the body of loved ones, like friends, 
shouldn't we honor? Now, I understand there needs to be balance in that regard. There needs to be limits. God gave limits. Leviticus 19.28, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves on the Lord. There were limits on how they could show honor for the dead. Deuteronomy 14.1, You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your head for the dead. There are limits. And today I think that means We don't buy million-dollar caskets, right? We don't pompously purchase an ostentatious casket and a a huge monument to place on our our plaque after we die. And on the other hand, we don't try and and make up for not having honored a loved one while they were living by blowing a whole lot of money on a funeral. You can't make up for the fact that it's too late. One of the saddest things I ever saw years ago, preached the funeral. After the funeral, everybody, you know, gets up and walks by the casket, leaves, and then the family goes up there, and the last member of the casket of the family was one of the daughters. Everybody goes on, but this daughter draped herself over the closed casket, weeping, sobbing, as she continually repeated, that her brother had to come back and carry her away from the casket. You, you, you can't make up for a thing, folks. It's too late. So make that phone call today. Visit them today. Go and be reconciled today. Don't selfishly justify yourself by saying, oh, I don't want to remember him the way he is now. It's not about you. It's not about your memory. It's about loving and serving Jesus. Love him now instead of overdoing him today. Now, don't go off into the ditch on the other side of the road either, as in, well, you know, when I die, pull all the gold out of my teeth and bury me naked in the backyard without a coffin, that'll be just fine. No, it won't. Not for anybody else, let me tell you. <laughs> they don't want to think about that in the backyard. <laughs> That's not on We need to maintain some balance on this matter, and we must honor the the body of anyone who's died because the body is not disposable. It is not a throwaway container. It will be resurrected. And I know it will be resurrected because the resurrection has already begun. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first person. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The death he died was a substitutionary death. He died for you and me. 
our sin demanded eternal death for us. But instead, He took our place. He died and paid our penalty. And then three days later, He rose from the grave. The resurrection began at that moment. He was the first fruits. His resurrection became the promise of our resurrection. And so Paul continues there in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Then when He comes, those who belong to Him, we will be resurrected. Therefore, we ought to honor the dead. Now, briefly, I believe there's a second reason we ought to honor the dead, and that, that is because we want to honor that for which they died. Let me be very clear. I don't want to be mistaken on this. I'm not suggesting that we honor the dead, particularly on Memorial Day, by honoring war. I'm not a pacifist. But neither have I romanticized war into some glorious thing. It is not. It is a terrible evil. But sometimes it's a necessary evil. Contrary to what some groups in the world and in our culture in particular seem to believe, there is evil in the world. And sometimes evil needs to be stopped with war. In spite of the fact that war is evil. And therefore we do not honor war, but we must honor those who fought for us and for our nation. And for that which they fought for and died. And what they fought for is freedom. Liberty. What is liberty? This nation gained its liberty so long ago, and we've enjoyed it for so many years. I'm not sure we still understand what it is. I'm not sure we understand what our forefathers, our nation's fathers, sought to create and what they fought and risked everything for. Do you know what liberty is? In our culture, the popular definition of liberty is this. The ability to do whatever I want. And, and hidden in that, but not hidden very well, is the truer meaning, which is the freedom to do any wickedness I would like. Free to sin. Free to flaunt sexual immorality, rampant pornography, abortion, indulgence in obscene affluence, cold-hearted selfishness, and self-worship. But I want to suggest to you this morning, that's not freedom. Our Constitution and Bill of Rights were not written to guarantee that we could do any wicked thing we desired. They were written to ensure that we would be free to do what is right. And there is a vast difference between those two definitions of liberty. Now, if you got through third and fourth grade, and I did, because we're learning, you know from what history was taught that our forefathers came to this land 
not to be free to be wicked. They came to be free to do what was right, to be able to worship the Lord as the Bible taught them. They couldn't do that in England and Europe. They came here to gain liberty to do what is right, but liberty is never unlimited. Liberty is never unlimited. Freedom of speech does not give a man the right to come into our service today and begin shouting obscenity. It does not give anyone the right to walk into a dark theater and shout fire when there is no fire. Freedom of speech does not give you the right to libel someone or slander someone. All liberty must be limited, must be limited by law. Otherwise, every man's right will soon be trampled upon by those who are exercising unlimited liberty. True liberty is only found within the limits of law. The Bible is a perfect law of liberty. James 1.25 tells us that. The man who looks intentionally into the perfect law, that gives freedom. That's referring to the Bible. God's law establishes our liberty. How is that? When is a fish most free? When you liberate it from the water? I mean, there are advantages to that. No question, but not for the fish, right? The water limits the fish, but water is the atmosphere the fish must have in order to live and be free. When is a pianist most free? When he ignores the laws of harmony and rhythm, when he randomly hits notes on the keyboard like some two-year-old, and that's funny when it's a two-year-old, it's not funny when you're 30. Is he not most free when he masters the laws of music and then creatively expresses his gifts within those laws? So when is man most free? When he rebels against his creator and violates the laws his creator has established? Absolutely not. Man is most free when he lives in agreement with and submission out of love for God and his law. Liberty is only found within the context of law, God's law. And therefore, each of us, individual liberty only exists when we are living within the boundaries of God's law. To live contrary to God's law is not freedom. It's rebellion and anarchy. And in anarchy, there is no freedom. There is only terror and suppression. You go to 2 Kings chapter 35. We won't turn there today. But he describes the nation of Judah after it was defeated, decimated, and deported under the Babylonians. And they left just a skeleton of population with a skeleton of rather non-functional government behind them. And the result in the vacuum of effective government and law is anarchy, assassination, betrayal, fear, insecurity, and nobody was free. When we today separate ourselves from the rule of law only God, we personally experience anarchy, betrayal, fear, insecurity. Sadly, 
flavor of the natural state of birth following the fall of man into sin. Every person is born into this world spiritually enslaved and needs to be liberated. That's why we read three times in Romans 6 that through Christ we have been freed from sin. That's why we read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every child born into this world is in bondage to sin. We know that. We don't like to admit it. We often refuse to admit it. But it's true nonetheless. And to be enslaved to sin means I can't help but sin. I had a, I had a man I worked with many years ago as a young man. I was working in a foundry in Warsaw, Indiana. His name was Melba Blue. Unusual name. That's why I never forgot. They called him Blue. And I was talking to him one day, and he, he was talking about the fact that he had a rather profound cigarette smoking habit. Smoked all day through work. You know, if he wasn't sleeping, he was smoking. And he, he, he acknowledged that, you know, there were lots of health issues to be associated with it, but he was doing fine, and he was an elderly man at that time. And I said, well, why don't you quit? And he said, well, people try to tell me that, that you can't quit. You know, you're a hypocrite. He said, that's not true. I can quit this whenever I want. I just don't want to. And it struck me at that time, that's exactly what being enslaved to something is. In fact, that's the worst form of slavery, isn't it? When they don't have to put chains on you and they don't have to lock you up. Because you want to be a slave. That's what it is to be enslaved to sin. We love our sin. We defend it, don't we? Preacher gets up and he teaches against sin and we defend ourselves in our minds, don't we? Somebody tries to point out our sin. Oh, no, no, no. I was justified. We are born slaves to sin, and because we are sinners, we must suffer. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because of all sin. Sin holds a death grip on every one of us, and there's no escaping it, not on our own. And that's bondage, that's tyranny. It exists because we've broken God's law and lived in rebellion against Him. And even though we may be very sophisticated and cultured and civilized rebels, because we've set ourselves outside of God's law, we have no liberty when we are enslaved to sin and death. Now, I want you to know that the, the death spoken of in Romans 12 is not just physical death. If that's all it was, it wouldn't be such a big deal, actually. Matthew 25, 41 tells us, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The penalty for our sin is eternal death. Always dying, but never dead. But, but slavery and tyranny don't get the final word. In Jesus, there is liberty. However, comes at a horrible high price. Price almost beyond our comprehension. Liberty is so costly it required the death of Jesus personally. The price we should have paid, the death we should have died. 
who died in our place. First Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. No higher ransom could have been paid than was paid for you and me to rescue us from sin. We were bought with the blood of God's Son, our Creator, Jesus Christ. But folks, the death He died and the infinite price He paid does us no good unless unless you repent and trust in Him completely and only. Unless you deposit all of your faith, all of your confidence, all of your reliance in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're familiar with it, aren't you? For it is by grace you have been saved. Oh, it's all of God. He does it as a gift through faith. For it is grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life is given. We can't earn it. It's given to all who surrender to, who trust in, who rely completely and only upon Jesus Christ. God's working in your heart this morning. He's convicting you of things you're not sure of. Humble yourself. Get down on your knees and say, God, I've got a lot of sin and offenses and stuff in my life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege to gather in your name today and to be reminded of those things that have eternal significance. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, to fall down before you, and to trust you and have you sent to Jesus as our Savior. To fill you with joy, to fill you with complete submission. Work in hearts, work in hearts, Jesus for your glory.